Essendon winning their first flag since well, I'm looking at this uh, rundown sheet and it says the final episode, episode 10 of Working Through It, the Essendon Football Club podcast to get everyone, and not just Essendon fans, not just football fans, but everybody through what's been an extraordinary uh, period of, of life for, for communities all around the world, but particularly for the Essendon community. We've tried to to distract you over the last 10 weeks, and we'll try and do it again today. My name's Adam White, but it's all about James Hurd, Xavier Campbell, and Joe Watson, who have uh, given their time uh, for all the Essendon fans out there over the last 10 weeks. And uh, it's a bit weird today, because usually I just sit here and just say hello, and it sort of just goes across to the guys. They're all in their, in their houses, or Xavier's sometimes in his office. Um, they're all in the studio with me here. So it's all a bit weird. Uh, we're live on television um, I don't really sure how this whole show is going to happen, but uh, we're just going to have a bit of fun and reflect back on what's been the last 10 weeks, but also a bit of a, a preview for the season proper as well with uh, the Bombers taking on Sydney on uh, Sunday at the SCG. We'll take plenty of text messages. We'll try and chat to as many fans as we can. And uh, yeah, just reflect back on the last 10 weeks. I said welcome to Xavier Campbell 10 weeks ago and asked him what the podcast was going to be. You heard from him in, in the opener there, Xavier. How proud are you of what has been achieved over the last 10 weeks? Yeah, thanks, Whitey. Um, it's good to be here this afternoon. It's good to get everyone in the same room. Um, yeah, really proud. I mean, it sort of was when we first had those discussions about what, what the podcast might be or what the concept was and how we might bring it to life, it was sort of it was difficult to work out where it might go. But to think we're sort of 10 weeks on now, it's become a bit of a staple and um, each week for Essendon fans, it's it's certainly helped build that connection with the club. You know, in a time where the traditional connection wasn't there, with the season being impacted in the way that it was. So, um, you know, judging by the feedback we receive all the time when you're talking to fans, it's sort of it's been really positive. So, um, you know, I want to thank the boys for for buying into it and um, you know everything that they've done because it's it's been excellent for the from the club's perspective. I think it's been great from the fans as well, and fans have really engaged with the, with the show every week. I remember when I was told uh, that we were going to do it and uh, Dave Barham, who's uh, sort of behind the scenes with this show, he said, oh, we're going to get James Hurd to be part of this podcast. And I must confess, I did say, oh, please, I don't think you're going to get James Hurd to be part of this podcast. He said, no, 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 he wants to do it. And sure enough, he's done all 10 episodes and he's with us in the studio. Hurdy, what have you got out of this? This oh, experience? Look, I think it's been, it's been great to reconnect with Essen supporters and look... 
I think the uh, lockdown period, as beneficial as it's been for the Victorian community in terms of health-wise, has been very difficult for all of us. You know, you're at home, you can't get out, and so um, hopefully this for the Essence supporters has been helpful, but even for you know ourselves, I think, just to have an hour and a half a week doing something a bit different you wouldn't normally do has been interesting. Um, but what I'm really looking forward to is the is the best of show. Um, <laughs> they say that Faulty Towers went for 10 or 11 weeks. They've played it for the last 30 right, years. Exactly so right. Job and I are expecting that RSN is going to be playing this uh, on a regular repeat basis. Um, over the next 25 years. Imagine the royalties that everyone's going to get for the next uh, 25 it'll years. It'll be at least triple what we're getting paid now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Joe Watson rounds out the trio. Joe, um, we think about what we were thinking and talking about 10 weeks ago to where we are now that footy's back. Did you, did you think it would be back as quickly as we were? I thought it was probably ambitious early in, in March when you, you were reading you know, what the numbers were doing globally and, and what the expectations were here. I think that everyone thought that, you know, how how deep is the, the rabbit hole that we're going to be going down? No one really knew where we were going to be ending up and football and sport in general felt like just a, a completely... Um, a bridge too far away um, because there was such uh, fear in, in the community and, and fear, uh, you know, about people's lives and, and, and livelihoods. So sport definitely took a back step. But, um, you know, I think that uh, as society and the community as a whole has been able to implement the, the needs um, and the social distancing and, and what that's done to, you know, being able to flatten the curve and, and being able to slowly reopen the uh, the country has been obviously um, it's taken an enormous amount of goodwill amongst the collective to be able to achieve it and and now the I guess the the benefit of that is one that we haven't had um, you know obviously the loss of life that we were expecting but um, also sport is now able to return and I think it's a it's wonderful and obviously people who are um, you know heavily invested in in the game it's great to see that it's coming on and that people can come back and um, and watch the sport and hopefully, you know, in the not-too-distant future, go back and actually be at the games, which would be fantastic. Yeah, and that seems to be getting better and better all the time. Now, what usually happens here is that I just leave it to you to then sort of host the show from here. <laughs> Don't worry about me just sitting right next to you. Just go for your life. But what we will do as the as the show progresses is sort of reflect back on all the interviews we did throughout the course of, uh, of this uh, 10 weeks and we'll get to as many text messages as we can. We won't just do it at the end. We'll try and feed them through um, as we go. But, Joe, go for it. It's all yours. Well, I think that what I would like to tell... You know, like a preview of where the season's going to go now. I think that we're all excited about the the season starting and um, the expectations. We've we've touched on it as we've spoken to different players and and people associated with the club. But I guess your opinion, Hurdy, on what your expectations are for the team this year, um, where you think uh, the strengths of the side are, where the weaknesses are, what you would love to see in this first four weeks um, to show you that the the, the, the team's really progressing. Yeah, I'd be interested to read in the paper and get you guys to comment over the last couple of days people's predictions about where Essendon are going to finish. And, um, you know, coming into the season, everyone's sort of Essendon's around the, the top eight and we beat Fremantle. But in the last 10 weeks, we've got worse because uh, not one, I think, pundit has put us in their, in their final eight. So um, that feels harsh to me. I think that it's very hard to go backwards. And particularly looking at the, um, the injury list, I think that, you know, Fantasia's going to be out and also um, Joey. But other than that, it looks to be a pretty complete... Um, um, list and I think that's been one of the issues for us over the last five or six years is having a full list to, to pick from but with a strong midfield, even stronger um, you know, with Smith coming into the, the team from last year being injured and spending some time in the, in the forward line 
I think we're a very good chance to be, you know, thereabouts and, you know, bottom part of the eight and then you, you play from there. So, look, you, your start will be the most important thing. I mean, you've got to get wins on the board early with a shortened season because there will be injuries. Every club is going to have injuries. But um, if uh, if you can get off to a good start, I think you, you, you're in with a chance. I can't see why we've gone backwards as far as everyone thinks we have over the last 10 weeks. Do you think that the quality of the game, I think we all expect it to be a bit rough early and, and scratchy as the early parts of the season often are, but do you think the actual product might be superior by the time we're sort of in that um, you know, third or last third of the, the season? You know, We've got players who are more rested. Mm. There's not as many, uh, there's no games in the VFL, so players aren't sort of getting injured and hurt in the VFL. Um, there's going to be higher competition for spots. The games are s- shorter um, and there's less of them. You know, that slug period that we talk about, you know, June, July and August, do you think that actually goes away and it just becomes a, a higher quality season for, right to the end? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think also one of the things, I, I expect this round to be like a finals round. I mean, mm. can you, the pent-up uh, anxiety and, and tension and the, everyone knows to get off to a good start. And also, as you would know, Joe, and also... Xavier, you know, the star in the sample you were, obviously. <laughs> that that basically that, that first five or six rounds, the last the last ten minutes of each quarter when you first start is a real struggle, right? Yeah. That's where the skill errors come. That's just not going to be there this this year in terms of those first five four or five rounds. So I'm expecting there will be mistakes for the first two or three rounds, but the intensity I think um, is really going to lift um, in, in this round because you just the players want to play, mm. and they're actually it's great to see the players playing for the right reasons. So I think you'll be, see a better quality. I think you'll be more intense, more pressure. And the games will go right down to the wire because of the shortened uh, shortened quarters. And do you think that um, what expectations from th- this list, you know, and this team who've, you know, we're building and obviously trucks come in um, with his and, and Blake has come in with their, their game plan and, and what that they were trying to implement. They've they've had that missed period of time, but obviously talking to the players, they were really excited about what the development had looked like over that November, December, January, February period. Mm. How long do you think it will be before they start to re-pick up that level that they were sort of heading towards, you know, in, in season when pressure comes and, and there's actual fatigue and things like that? Do you think it will we will see straight away a different style of Essendon game? I think so. I think it'll be a better style. Rightly or wrongly, there was criticism about our style the last two or three uh, last two or three years. And if you, if you sort of listen to what's being said, you listen to the players talk and you watch round one, a much more defensive, cohesive, team-based defence is, is implemented and they've got a stronger midfield. And so if you can win that ball out of the middle of the ground and then implement a better team defence, you, you give yourself a really good chance of, of being a good side. So I think everything that has been talked about, and I also think that, you know, just knowing that there have been some teaching sessions going on, not on the field, but in, you know, video conferencing the, the players and, you know, in, in team-based thing and, and that sort of stuff. So, yes, under it might take a little bit of time to adapt, but I think our game style will be vastly improved on, on last year, um, particularly from that defensive point of view. And Xavier, you've probably been at some trainings or looked over the fence or looked out from your office and, and seen them working on it. I imagine they've been working on it pretty hard over the last two or three weeks. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it really hurts us to have that break either. Like, to your point, the education piece has been a big part of the focus across the preseason, um, and even just to get that one game out, and obviously we got the win, which was important. I think I think we played better than what the result probably indicated. We just fell away late, but you could see that marked difference in their game plan, particularly on how we moved the ball forward, our attack, and that's obviously been you know, last year. The focus was defence with Ben coming to the program. This year with Blake coming to the program, it's been about not just attack, but building the connection between defence and attack, and you started to see 
some of those aspects that were, were sort of shining through. And then you get that break. I think it's an opportunity for players to reset. Um, is it ideal? It's not ideal, but in the context of where we're at, I don't think it hurts us. Um, and it gives them an opportunity another three weeks now to build into it. Everything's compromised. Like, everything's just different, but everyone's in the same position. So I, I don't sort of buy into it being a lesser year or anything else like that. No. If anything, I mean, every game means more now than it, than any other year in the context of how many games there are. So I'm actually really excited about the year. I feel really, I feel positive about the year. To your point before about well, where do where do the experts, you know, see? It sort of doesn't really bother me what they think. I'm surprised to read it. You know, the fact that you know only one thought we were sort of a top eight team was surprised, but. You know, I don't mind us going in with a lower expectation from the outside looking in than we've had in the past because I think there's a disproportionate build on some of the bigger teams. They either pump you up higher than perhaps you should be yeah. and or bring you down lower. And maybe last year and this year are the two contrasts in that respect. But I feel confident. I feel genuinely confident about the path that we're on. And you've got, I mean, you've got Heppel coming back this week, which you know he will, probably wouldn't have played the first seven or eight weeks of the yep. season anyway. And look, one player doesn't make your team or break your team, but inspirational leader, obviously extremely good player in your midfield. And I think the injury to Tip and Woody on the weekend in that practice game, whatever it was, if he can get up as well, um, mm. it's vital because Sydney aren't flying. You know, they don't, they're not the best team in the competition. You've got Carlton the week after. And then a, Melbourne into uh, and, Collingwood. And Melbourne into Collingwood. So you look at those first three games, you come out of that... Hopefully zero and four, and you are, you know, you're, you're in with a red hot chance to, to get that top eight. So, I think it's looking positive. But you go to Sydney and you, you cop a hiding, it all changes too, and you get three or four injuries. I think the season will be on the balance over the injuries and the performances you get early in, in this in the year because injuries lead to injuries. You get two or three injuries to key players, you've got to throw mm. your team around more injuries, and that can be a massive uh, hurdle for the team. Mm-hmm. Also, Hurdy, the other part of that I think is really interesting is how do you get off to a fast start you know like how do you get off to a fast start in games because I think that there'll be definitely a trend for the teams that um, you know three goals up in the first quarter might seem recoverable but uh, when you shorten the game by 20% um, and, and scoring becomes harder, all of a sudden the three-goal advantage in, in the first quarter becomes an insurmountable lead to peg back by the time the game finishes. So the, from, a, from a coach's perspective, how, how do you sort of try and focus the team? I mean, you used to tell to me all the time, just kick it as, straight, as soon as you get it at the start of games. <laughs> and I used to ignore you, but... Uh, like, well, it wasn't the only thing. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you sort of, from a coaching sense, how do you emphasize how important start, uh, starts are now because not only do we talk about it every time we play but there it is it's more relevant now than what it has been in previous years yeah, i think one of it is having your best players around the ball and around those contests as often as possible because you know you can have them there more because the game doesn't go as long i mean what you would have rotated probably three times a quarter mm. so to speak so yeah. in this instance you probably would have only rotated twice rotated twice a quarter maybe a bit up forward so you know you have your best players and you have your best combinations and Often in the rotation, often in the, the course of a, a quarter or a particular half, you can lose touch with which players are around the ball and you can suddenly look at your, at your centre square or your players are you know closer to the ball and you go, well, gee, you've got three inexperienced players and only three senior players. Mm-hmm. And that way, I think you can really control that. So that's what I, one of the things I would try and do. Um, and, and you'll probably see players, you know, it'll play out, but you might see players, your lesser players, spending a bit more time on the bench um, because you, you can just get that, get get the, the rest you need in your players 
but also you, you need your players at the start of the quarter to focus on on getting in the contest, outnumbering and doing all those little little hard things that um, around the contested footy, which you know the best teams, Richmond and Collingwood and, and West Coast, do so well. A question for both of you. I mean, a lot of people have talked about on-field leadership and some of the best teams over the past ten or fifteen years. You know, the Hawks, the Cats. People rave about, and I think Brendan even when we had him on the show last week talked about how much he admired watching some of those teams and the leadership that the players showed toward each other and the direction and almost coaching that they gave. How important is that in the modern game? And, and in a year like this, where the quarters are shorter, the season is shorter, how big a role will that play? And no runners. I think the runners yeah. are, are out like they were last year. So it's it's more and more important. I mean, already when you were coaching and you had to send out a runner, it was a three to five minute lag and you know they'd get out and then Joe would have to tell the next guy the next yeah. guy. And you might be 10 minutes before it happened, so it was difficult. But if you can't get runners out till goals are kicked, you're, you're senior players understanding the game plan and being able to direct players around as well as concentrating their own game. Um, and it's not just two or three senior players. It's it's two players per line, potentially, mm. that can see, adjust, and then manipulate the, the, the mm. numbers around the ground. Because more and more so... Um, it's it's not a it's not a fullback line, a centre line, a halfback line. It's numbers around the ball and where they're positioned on the field. And if you don't get those numbers right, um, then you can really be vulnerable at certain stages of the game. So I think senior players are more and more important. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if the teams with the the better leadership groups and the, the more senior leadership groups have played together the longest are the ones that at the end of the year are very successful because they just have an added advantage because of the, the lack of time that you can to put in the players at training. Because I still think you're only allowed to train one con- one contested ball session a week or one major, yep. one major. so you're not you're still not training no. e- even the continuity you would in a normal season. Yeah. I think that will be one of the, the best uh, television parts of what what happens with no crowds is the content that that the audience will hear from the players mm. on the ground because um, there's a lot that gets said and and now it will be crystal clear for the audience to be able to hear and listen to what players are saying to each other and that content is stuff that is going to be new to the audience and I think it's going to provide a, a wonderful insight as to what the players are thinking what they say to each other when there's a mistake or when something good has happened what they say when momentum changes against like all these insights that you would you, as a as a commentator or as a spectator you're are guessing it, um, you know, when you're watching the game. But now there's actually the content is going to be available. I think it's going to be a wonderful. Well, one of the questions for you, Joe, you're commentating the Essendon game this yep. week. And if you're commentating a game and you're at the ground, you can see the whole ground and especially special comments, you're able mm. to analyse what's going to happen and, and talk about off off the ball. How. Are you going to commentate from your living room or are you going to do it for, on your, your, no. your Zoom or uh, how, how are you going to do it? We're doing it from uh, the uh, hub down in, in, in South Melbourne. So that's going to be one of the, the challenges is is going to be, you know, you don't have this perspective. of. Mm. of so of do you have a, a behind-the-goals camera? You, you've or not? got a behind-the-goals camera, um, you, but you've, then you've got the normal vision camera. Um, but a lot of the time when you're, you're standing there in the coach's box, you can see what's about to happen because mm. you, you can see down the field and, and you, you're know what is about to take place and and you know this is the other thing as well like the moves that need to be made Mm. in the coach's box Mm. are are much easier to see at the ground and so it's going to be um, interesting to to be able to interpret you you are going to be guessing a little bit about what is it that they're they're seeing 
um, the other part is the boundary riders can actually, with permission, they can actually sit anywhere in, in the um, stadium. So, you know, a Jude Bolton's going to be doing the boundary riding for the Swans game. He can go and sit behind the goals okay. um, yeah. and, and view it from that viewpoint. And, and, and so that's going to be interesting to, to see the different um, perspective that they're getting as well. Mm. I actually, yeah, I watched um, the game against Freeman around one from behind the goals in a, mm. in a box. It was, uh, And it's sort of, in, you can't help but in a normal game with the, you know, the cut and thrust of the crowd but get caught up in just ball following mm. just because of the, you know, the way yeah. the game is unfolding everything else like that and the way the crowd's cheering everything else like that but when the thing I noticed about it, I had Hep in the box next to me and he was giving enormous direction from the box whether he's supposed to be doing that or not was, <laughs> yeah, the, just the encouragement A, the, the encouragement from Hurls to the rest of the back because you know, to your mm. point before you've got these different back um, line generals and Hurls mm. really played that role exceptionally well the work off the ball that mm. you know a lot of you just don't notice in a in a normal game when you've got got the fans there, and just the general encouragement. And um, you know, Hep was doing a lot of that. Hurls were doing an enormous amount of that, particularly for the younger guys. Mm. That's those guys who, you know, it's a big thing for them playing senior football. They haven't played an enormous amount of it. So, yeah, to your point, you will see a lot more of that. It's um, it's a good thing to see. And so on that point, tickets for this week. How many tickets are Essendon getting? Uh, for the Essendon Sydney game, you'd be obviously, yeah. There's four hundred to go. There'd be, there'd be 100, Wales, yeah. 100 tickets. Essendon supporters will be getting. I haven't heard of the announcements yet from the New South Wales government around what uh, what this weekend might look like, but uh, I'm sure Tom and the team up there at Sydney will be uh, will be uh, looking after the both the two sides. Obviously, it's a big um, it's a big game. First game back in the spirit of uh, where we've all been and where we all want to go. I'm sure uh, there'll be an Essendon contingent there. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's hope those rumours aren't true. <laughs> hey, we've got uh, plenty of text messages coming through, so I, I should try and get to as many as I can now. And There's pages of them, and I think even if you think back to when we first started to where we are now, so many more messages are coming through um, every show. 0416 90 50 52 is the way to go about it if you want to uh, ask a question. There will be times where I'll try and group questions together because there's just so many of them. So probably to you, Xavier, first, just the, the challenges as CEO of an AFL football club around membership and how much time and energy and thought has gone into how you service the members when they can't actually go to the football. Mm. Um, and what a challenge and a juggle that's been for you. Yeah, it was really it was really challenging early, but it was also something that the team embraced. And Justin Rodsky is our chief commercial officer. He's and he's got a really strong, you know, really real skill, really skilled from a media perspective and digital perspective. And that was where you know we moved to straight away was like digitally. How are we going to bring more unique insights, more behind the scenes footage um, around the club and around what we're doing and being more transparent about it, so much of that? How are we going to do that for the fans? And you know, even even the whole concept of this show essentially sort of you know, came from all right what else can we do to try and provide a connection to the club so there's been a lot of that i mean it's, i tell you in terms of the membership and the, the pledge and the support of the members you know, i've been overwhelmed in seeing what that's looked like over the past two weeks or three weeks since we first launched that campaign you know without giving specific numbers like the the, the percentage of members that have completely pledged their membership for this year on the back of Absolutely nothing in terms of being able to get the games and everything else. On zero, you know, um, guarantee around getting the games or anything else like that. It just shows you how much the football club means to so many. Um, so I think you'll find even just the way we do business, just generally as football clubs, but the way we try and find uh, connections for the fans moving forward, above and beyond just the traditional coming to games, I mean, which is always going to be such a critical element of a membership. 
uh, you're going to see some really exciting products and experiences and everything else like that. And that's, yeah, hopefully shows like this aren't, um, you see a lot more of them moving forward as well. Do you think, and this is direct questions from the members, just in regards to, to crowds, have you got any information at all about where it might be? And I know that's a little bit like asking you whether your name's Nostradamus, but uh, you, you were pretty good with your prediction earlier on in episode one, which we'll get to shortly, but where it might be in four weeks, eight weeks, 12 mm. weeks, or is that just impossible? Well, I... I'm, uh, you know, I see that it's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, initially just sort of three or four hundred a game, and you know, that's it's sort of nice, but it's also a challenge. Like, yeah. it's, in some respects, you just prefer let's jump straight to ten thousand or fifteen thousand, so you can get lots of members into the games. And you know, even I was talking to a corporate partner of ours today, a long-standing corporate partner, about you know how we're going to approach minimal numbers of you know around access to grounds and he's like well we don't want access get the members access in part that's why we get involved in the club is because of the passion and the connection the members have with the club and when we mm. we partner with Essendon a big part of it is because you've got 85,000 members and that's they're the lifeblood they're the the heartbeat of the football club and um you know I'd like to think in Victoria is probably going to be a state that's going to m- not quite move as quickly as perhaps the other states for obvious reasons and we've still have had a higher transmission than other states I would think that it will probably be a month before we start to get crowds back in the games. But I think that at that point, there may be the ability, all things obviously remaining equal in terms of transmission, particularly community, community transmission over the next month. If we can still manage that and the curve is completely flattened, I think you'll find we can move really quickly into bigger numbers at matches, far quicker than what we would have all, all, all thought. And even to the point where you might get a final series that's that's... Um, that's not impacted at all with respect to crowd limits. And that's a long stretch, but it's something that um, if we can continue at this level and the health experts believe uh, it can be warranted, we could see that. And that's not out of reach. Even, but you know, a month ago, it probably did feel a long way out of reach. Mm, absolutely. Uh, we're live on Facebook as well. So on the Essendon Facebook page, it's, it's like television. You can see the guys uh, having a chat. Uh, and obviously, if you're just listening it through, uh, through the app or through whatever way you, you're listening to it, um, send in some questions, 0416 90 50 52. And, and we'll get some questions also that are actually coming up live on Facebook uh, when we can. Uh, over the course of the year, I'll go to you first, Joe. What was, the, what was the, your favourite interview that we did? Um, I, I think that um, probably the Bruce McAvaney interview, um, I thought, uh, one, it was we weren't um, being diluted by having Xavier in the interviewing, <laughs> so the content was, was, was higher. Um, but I, I just, um, Bruce is such a, uh iconic person in, in Australian sport and, um, you know, growing up, listening to him call these just enormous event, uh, events, you know, Kathy Freeman's 400-metre um, gold medal win and, um, grand finals and Melbourne, you know, Melbourne Cups and things like that, and and so to, for him to be as honest and open about, um, you know, his own challenges, how his time in the industry has has changed him, um, what he's learned, um, the people that he's met, you know, like for me that was a, a fantastic insight into you know really iconic, well, highly respected, highly regarded person who just loves what he does, but also. Um, 
you know, he's constantly trying to improve himself. And I think I thought it, I, I took out of it. It was such a great lesson about you, you look at people and who are uh, who you admire and who are successful, and they're very their their methodology is very simplistic. You know, they they're just trying to improve themselves all the time. And I took a lot out of it. And and, and I thought that um, you know, Herdy, uh, I sort of sat back and let Herdy do most of the the questioning. But I felt that Bruce was really open. It was a really great interview. I really enjoyed it. Well, let's have a listen to a little bit of it. This is uh, Bruce talking about uh, the difficult time in his life when Seven actually lost the footy for that uh, five or so years to Channel 9 and how the experience actually changed him. But I feel like I became less selfish. Um, When I came, when we got back into the footy, I do feel like I became a better team man and and Mm. I felt like I grew up a bit. I felt like I was less self-centred. Now, I'm being pretty honest and raw here. I haven't said this yeah. probably before to too many. But I felt like I was um, a more mature person. And I think having that five years away from the absolute most important thing that any broadcaster can do, I think, in this country, and that's to call AFL football on a regular basis, what an opportunity that is. Um, and to have it, you know, not have it for five years and then... You know, and during that time, I've had ups and downs at work. I've fallen out of favour uh, a few times. But there have always been challenges. But I've always believed in my ability to um, keep working hard and to try and improve. So that was uh, Bruce talking about that time. As I said, uh, they lost the footy there for a while, Channel 7. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's so... V- he gets quite vulnerable, doesn't he, when he talks? And it's it's really he's very honest. And it's usually it's just Bruce actually broadcasting. You don't actually get to talk to him or hear him talk. And he's just the passion comes through every time. He's he's a great person to, to listen to, and he's so passionate about what he does. And, he, and you can feel how much he loves what he does. And and um, I think it's a great. Uh, I just learned uh, I learned a lot about um, someone that I really admired, and I felt that um, him showing some vulnerability was a great. Um, display for people who are listening. So, what's it like when you're in the commentary box with him? Well, it's, it's it feels like you're sort of sitting there watching TV, you know, like <laughs> as a young kid. You know, you, you think that you're sort of being, I'm being, um, I guess, transported to my youth and, and listening to to Bruce calling, you know, like Friday night football, the Kangaroos and and Wayne Carey on Friday night footy. And um, so there's that nostalgia that I, I mm. really enjoy. And uh, and I guess you, I got to remind myself I would say something interesting and, <laughs> and, and talk at the same time. <laughs> what about you, Xavier? Of all the interviews that we did. Um, there's a lot of them. You can have more than one. We'll sort of throw it around a bit. We've got a few to, to choose from. What, what stood out for you? I mean, I, there, was a, there was a couple. I mean, we spoke before about Zach and or the leadership across um, the playing group and how important it is. And I, I enjoyed having seen and watched Zach's journey, you know, over the last sort of seven or eight years, you know, he's, and seeing how far he's evolved um, personally and with his self-reflection, his self-awareness. Like, he's an incredibly impressive young man. Like, his, his, his willingness to want to – he wants to learn, his growth mindset – and just listening to him reflect on, you know, not making the leadership group and how he's gone about it. That's, uh, that was, uh, you know, that made me feel proud and I was really impressed with him. And I know he's going to be, you know, an even better leader for us this year after the experience. Well, Herdy asked him the question and very early on in the piece, he just went bang and said straight up, you know, how did it affect you? And uh, was it going to have a, a potentially a positive impact going into season 2020? This is what he said. Yeah, it hasn't really changed, uh, I guess, my attitude towards, Still striving to be you know, the best leader uh, at Essendon, and 
still striving, striving to be the, the captain of the club at some point in time. But um, yeah, I think it was something that was a bit of a, a shock at the time. Um, I guess fortunate enough to have you know, a number of people around me that give me some good guidance and, and good feedback. And uh, yeah, I think it's just gave me another chance to grow for myself. And I uh, will continue to support Dyson and, and the other four leaders that are formalised in that group. Um, but yeah, it hasn't really changed much from day to day at training. And um, yeah, I think for me, it's just about growing those, those relationships with, with players on and off the field. And uh, I just, just guess being a, a good influence and, and a positive influence to keep improving the group moving forward. Herdy, you've mentioned this a couple of times over the last 10 weeks, and it's a, it's often said of Essendon about potentially the, the lack of leadership on the field, or it's an area that needs to improve for Essendon to take the next step. Where do you think where, where Essendon is at when it comes to the leaders on the field, not so much the, the leaders off the field? Look, I think we're tracking really well. I mean, we've got quality individuals in the team, you know, whether it be Michael Hurley down back, Carl Hooker, <clears throat> you know, bringing in Dylan Shield, um, uh, and Zach is definitely one of those. So I think we're tracking well. I just think we need a little bit more time to get that ex- experience up there. You know, Dyson obviously has shown a lot of leadership for his whole career, um, but you do need to see some reward for for your effort as well. And I think um, if they can get some reward for their effort, I think that that leadership will even grow further and further. We're talking we've got two Essendon captains sitting here in, in the studio. To you, I'll start with you first, Eddie. What to you is important to be a good leader of a football club? I think, first of all, authenticity and being your own your own person. That's a bit of a wishy-washy answer, maybe. But you can't be a really good leader, I don't think, until you actually understand who you are and what drives you and how that impacts the group. And if you, you, you understand that, and that doesn't come naturally or doesn't come early, does it, Joe? But no, it, takes, it, takes it takes a while to understand exactly how you influence the group positively and negatively. Um, and then if you've you know if you've got some good qualities about you, as most people have, and then you learn to express yourself and learn to talk and learn to care for, care for, or show that care for others, I think um, on top of the fact that you've got to get a kick and you've got to play unselfishly yeah. and all those sort of things. But the biggest thing that I, I saw in myself, but then also young leaders coming through, was just being comfortable in themselves and then how they affected the group with their actions. And once they understood that, they could, it's not manipulation, but they could drive the group up or they could drive it down by the, the way they, um, why they, the, by the way they behaved. Joe? Yeah, I think Herdy's answered it really well. That, that self-awareness, and, and that's probably why I always think that, um, you know, someone in a leadership position is something that shouldn't be given too early. You're better off going too late than too early just because I, I think you're right, Herdy. It is the most critical part is, is knowing, you know, being really comfortable in yourself and, and that, that wisdom that you have of when to push and when to pull back. And, and that is what time gives you. And, and that is why I think the people who get thrust into, into roles of um, leadership, it can be really difficult, especially in a football club. Mm. Young captains are often weighed down by that because they haven't had the ability to really just for self-discovery. And, um, and I think that that is, you know, that and empathy is something that um, really strong, well, really important qualities in a good good leader and a good captain. And um, unfortunately, I think that you do get pushed into it too early. Yeah, I think the group around you makes a big difference. Um, the fact that if you've got some older, experienced players who, who generally have been through the process, if you're a younger captain and understand you're going to make mistakes and let you make mistakes and guide you is really important as well. Um, young young captain with a young coach and a young list uh, is always very difficult because you just you don't get that guiding. Um, 
area to mould you. I don't, I mean, there are exceptions, but um, yeah, you, Job's right. You see a lot of leaders come into leadership as a group as a, or as a captain, and they do get they do fail, not because they're not going to be good leaders, but they're thrown in a bit too early, and um, perhaps um, you know they're burnt and they don't really back themselves after that. Yeah, I think that it's something. You know, like you look at it, and your guy is a high draft pick, so there's big expectations on him, um, and he plays well in his first couple of years, and all of a sudden he's expected to be a leader. You know, it, it, you're not. That is something that it might not be suited to his personality. You know, yeah. like, and and I think that that is you you pigeonhole, and it's like we funnel people into what we want them to be, um, but not really who they are. And 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 I think we miss the opportunity for people to really develop, and it means that we probably we cut people down before they get the opportunity to really become who they are um and that that path of of self-discovery in football it's a very it's very difficult because it's not it's not an industry where you get an opportunity to really ask yourself who am i and what what who who am i and what do i enjoy because you get you know from that from school you go straight into the industry and you get told this is where you have to be this is what you should look like this is what you have to lift this is the way what you have to run um these these is this is the calendar and this and then you go out and play and these questions about who am i what do i like all this stuff about yourself is not really something that well certainly from my own experience it wasn't something that i really asked myself until Mm. you know really Mm. towards the end of my career and i think that that is um one of the the problems with the industry is that uh, you don't have this cultivation of self um, and you get pushed into and pigeonholed into things. I I think particularly with your generation and generations going forward, that's the case because you don't have that outside world. When when, when I first started, you know, like players before me, you had jobs, you had a lot more time away from the club, you had other spheres of influence outside your family, your your work life, your your study life, and you're only at the club maybe three four times a week for three or four hours at a time whereas you know by the time you got there it was a seven or eight hour a day job and there wasn't any time for that extra sphere of inference to actually understand um and become who you are so yeah there is an argument that players still spend too much time at the club i'm sure it's a different argument from a club point of view you're paying them a lot of money the members want to see them there but i've always been in the belief believe it or not joe that players spend too much time at the club and to, if you pull them back a bit, you may not um, have a lesser performance and you probably have better people. So how do you then apply that to coaching? So think about your experience as a senior. I know, I know obviously a couple of those years are really challenging, but take it back to when you first stepped into the scene because it's sort of, um, the, the, the I guess, the comparison I can, I'm listening to you talk about is like Ben, ben Rutten's coming to be senior coach for the first time next year. He's having a, a really unique um, lead into it. Obviously, working with a very different coach to him, a really experienced coach, um, and we're trying to now build a framework around Ben for next year because that's all our planning right now is for next year. That is going to best, you know, support him to be the best coach he can be, and also to allow him to understand the areas that he can control and the areas that he can't. Because as you point before, Job, you talk about you, know, you can get caught up as a captain. You know, trying to focus on so many different things. And then, then there's, there's that is true, but there's only so many things you can you can actually control. Like, how did you find it, James? Yeah, in your, well, in your I think, first firstly, week? you're you're a lot older. Like, you know, a player comes in there, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Your coach normally doesn't coach for their 45, 40, 45. So you, you've got a little bit more experience on, on the world, and you've had different people influence you and different influences. So I think that's a little bit different. Your late thirties, though, when you started, yeah, I think, yeah. And Ben's. 36 yeah and but i also think it's there's a lot more 
um, to the job as a coach and as a player. You know, mm. you, you do. But in saying that, the the balance, you know, is not a great balance. Or you know, certainly when I was coaching, it wasn't a great balance. It was pretty much get in at six or seven, and you know, you might leave at five or six, but you're back on the phone straight after dinner, and away you go. So, you know, without creating headlines, I think that it's probably different now. I think that you need you need to find time away from that game um, to actually let your head distill your thoughts, let your head settle, and and be able to actually coach properly and for an enduring amount of time I mean you see coaches two three years they burn out because mm. it's just it's just all consuming and you you look at um, the NFL coaches and I only you know, I don't know a lot about the NFL coaches but they are full-on when they're coaching right mm. they are they're 16 17 hour days but they only go from you know what's the season 17 mm. weeks and there's probably a pre-season and there's there's a bigger you know sweet spot of time off there from what I've seen um, from the past whereas our season is very much um, it goes for your season finishes then you go into the draft then you go into training and you do see a lot of coaches now take a big chunk of that pre-season training off I mean Alistair Clarkson Damon Harbick Nathan Buckley I think all Luke have a considerable amount of time yep. um, because when you're on you're on and you just need some time to actually uh, clear your head and be a better coach but also more importantly a better person. So do you think that the um, I mean those those guys who you mentioned in the, in the football industry that are doing that now uh, have had some level of success um, Clarkson obviously you know a huge amount of success but they're also you know they have the wisdom to understand that what they were doing is unsustainable mm-hmm. um, so Xavier is it the responsibility of the administration then to push against the coach in the early years when he doesn't have the wisdom and say no 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 this is not what we're we're not going to allow you to burn yourself out because you think it's the best thing our responsibility is for ha- to have you here because we know that longevity and consistency gives us the best opportunity to be successful as a club. So we're telling you this is what you have to do because it's for your own good. I mean, you're going to get pushback from senior coaches like that, but surely that's, that is in part the responsibility of the administration. I think that's right. I think agreeing the parameters with the coach, they're never going to be able to completely step out of it because mm. it just... It just doesn't work like that, and they and they won't want to. If you know, based on the coaches I've worked with, and you know, I think about John and Ben, and even just thinking over this period where they've just been stand down, like they were both of them were only a point two or something like that, and you know that they're working point eight. Because mm. and particularly with Ben, he wants to continue to build the connection he has with his players. The education piece is critically important, but but I think agreeing the parameters of right, what are the rules of engagement first now for you now to allow you to be the best you can be. And it um, probably depends a little bit on the mindset of the coach. Now, at the moment, I've got two very, very different coaches. One is exceptionally experienced, mm. uh, part old school, because he's gone through you know the 90s, the 2000s, and been very successful. Um, and there's another coach who's got who's, who's, um, his emotional intelligence, his awareness, his, he meditates, he does all these sort of, sorts of things. He allows, he's prepared to show a greater level of vulnerability than a lot of other people that I've seen in football, um, and that builds a different type of connection. doesn't mean that one's, one style is better than the other. Like That's why I think with the two of them this year, they've, they've, they're going to complement each other. They have already complemented each other exceptionally well, and they will continue over the next 16, 17, 18 weeks, however long the season is going to go for. I guess then the challenge is how do you then bring that support mechanism for you know a first year coach like a Ben I think it's it's I believe like having the opportunity to have a succession plan in place is 
is good business. You see it all the time in corporate business, and that's big, big business. Um, I don't see why you can't make it work here. It's not ideal all the time because it's 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 harder to structure. Mm. Um, but in this in this circumstance, we've been able to do that. So, yeah, I definitely think we'll, we will sit down with Ben at the end of this this year and sort of say, well, how are you feeling? Because it's it's going to be a big run. It's going to be there's going to be a lot of incremental duties under his responsibility next year that he hasn't had this year. Yeah, um, and a lot of it will be the stuff you know the coaches just if they had to rate in order of preference. I don't think the media. No. Sponsor appearances, all those sorts of things. As much as they respect them, they were high on my. I'm not, I'm not sure. They were high on my list as well as Job's. We'd love the uh, sponsor and media. <laughs> but you know, deep down, like the the main relationship is the is the, the players, players exactly, the, the, and, and the, the fellow coaches. Yeah, the coaches, and and look to me, that major relationship is with the, the players. And when things start to not unravel a little bit, that's when you you, you start to try and work harder and, and spend more time. And I remember. We we basically you didn't have a day off for probably seven or eight months because the day off the players' day off was the mm. only time you really had to go and then do your planning with the other coaches mm. because when the players were there you wanted to spend as much time if not formally talking to them about the game informally just making sure there was a connection and you know sure Job and I'd find a way to talk regularly and it'd be quite you know it wouldn't be too constructed it'd be you know quite informal. But there was guys that I didn't know very well who were, you know, player 30 to 45 who I wouldn't watch play most mm. weeks because, you, you know, the reserves were on at the same time or you couldn't get there, that you had to really formally work hard to get to know. And that uh, that takes a lot of time. Yeah, I think your point about also it's sort of... It's one. It's when things aren't going that well, and they won't. There's points where they just won't yeah. go well. No matter who you are, the eight, eighteen coaches this year will be a point in time where something just doesn't go well. Where there might be two weeks or three weeks in a row where it doesn't go well, and that's when you truly. You know, right now, you just don't know how certain people will respond in certain circumstances, the, like that. The hardest thing I thought about coaching is there's forty, what forty four, forty five players, all with different personalities. You're a certain personality. How you have a relationship with all those, an authentic relationship, a really authentic relationship, and it doesn't it doesn't take six months. It takes no. a long time to have an authentic relationship, and the fact that it's okay not to get on with every player. Like yeah. it's, you, you don't have to like every player; no. they don't have to like you. As long as there is some sort of authentic relationship with respect, yeah. that within the boundaries of what you're trying to do, you work together to try and achieve it. So when you went into it, you kind of knew you would have. Through sheeds and all that sort of about how it turned him crazy, almost in a way sheeds with what how he went about it. And you would have seen a number of other coaches. Did you go in thinking I'm not going to be like those coaches and do the 80 hours a week? And but it just it just sort of takes hold. Or did you kind of know when you signed up that it just that's what it was going to be? No, I, I didn't sort of know what that uh, what the he didn't even know what the hours would be. I think I've been on record saying I hadn't you know. <laughs> I didn't know what the job, what to do some days. You'd go to training and you'd watch training. You'd be standing there like a supporter watching training. Well, what am I meant to actually be doing? But the fundamental is you've got to have a love for footy because you're just watching that much footy. So I've always watched a lot of football, really enjoyed it. So I didn't mind that, that side of it. But the the thing that I think got a lot, got took a lot of getting used to was was monitoring your car, or your your levels on wins and losses and performances and bad quarters and bad training sessions and if you got down every time a player had a bad training session you know you'd be you can see why they get pretty cranky because the players are sore they're tired they're they're up they're down and the biggest thing is walking so players run out to play the game on a weekend and mm. you'd just be praying that they're on 
Mm. You know, that they, they, they give, they're, not because every player didn't want to give their, their all, they used to be praying that they'd, they'd be energetic and they'd give it all because they had a chance. But some days you'd, you'd watch your team run out and they'd, you know, they'd be, well, just you can't be up every week. And if four of your best players are down, well, you, you're going to struggle. Wow. Well, one of the, I think one of the great interviews was with Nathan Buckley. Um, and he actually talked about, you know, not really having that full support of the players initially. And mm. let, let's have a listen to what Nathan said for those that missed it, and we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. A bit more awareness of yourself, first and foremost, and a bit more confidence in yourself. Uh, and then you, I, then I found you reach a point where you really don't care what other people think. Um, and if you can get to that position, then you can truly be yourself and... Um, that's pretty hard in the in the public forum, and and I, I probably got to that point, you know, late in 2017, where I realised that if I was going to go about it, I was going to go about it, you know, transparently and authentically, and and do it my way, I suppose, or be truer to myself. Uh, and and I was very fortunate to get through that and be given another contract, and and I really, I haven't. I can I can say that I've enjoyed my coaching and my and the, the involvement in football more in the last couple of years than I ever have because it's it, I'm, I'm probably closer to my truer self um, and the fact that you know the club has come along and, and we're winning a few more games definitely makes that easier. So a question to both Job and, and Herdy on that: Is there a moment where you just go, you know what, I don't care what people think, I'm just going to do it my way, or? Does that just happen over time? So you as a captain, and also, I mean, the pressures that you went through were extraordinary, Job, as captain of the footy club, where you're almost like a big brother to all those younger players. So did that just emerge, or did there a moment where you go, you know what, I'm going to do it this this way now, I'm going to do it my way? Yeah, I don't, I think um, it's something that you you develop, and and it becomes sort of with with maturity and through experience, you know, and, and you experience good things and you experience bad things. I think that I certainly felt that, you know, I learned so much more about myself through di- moments of difficulty and, and through hardships. And that was that was more liberating um, going through that. Um, th- then, And that allowed me or propelled me to be more uh, closer to who I actually really wanted to be. Because I think the industry... Um, and I certainly felt that you, you, there was expectations that you had to be cer- a certain, behave a certain way, and, and think and say a certain thing, and, and talk a certain way, and um, and I think it it, it, it became su- suffocating, and I think it does suffocate people's real personalities, um, and I think it, it, the industry and, and the way you know, like it's reported or um, the way in which we talk about players, I think would be far better if we were allowed people to be who they actually were and feel comfortable who they were and present themselves as the who they actually are and not criticise them for the for that. Um, and I think that you would get better quality interviews. I think you would get better better quality um, content um, because I, I do think that unless you get to a stage through experiences and maturity where you stop caring, then a lot of your formi- formulative years and when i'm saying formulative i'm talking about you know from 18 to 30 you do care a lot about what people think and you you know like and you are very aware about what you say and you and the industry because you know criticism is is coming if if you say something that isn't how people want want it to be said or how it sh- how it um it should be said according to 
you know the standards or what the expectations are and and so i think that the bucks for example you know like i i made the comment to him in the interview i said like you know to me nathan looking uh, from externally the person that i see now is someone who is just full of empathy and perspective and had i had i been asked that question about you 10 years ago those aren't the words or the ways in which i would describe you because i think that he's learned through his maturity and and experiences that um this is who he wants to be and and he doesn't care about the expectations of other people um but it's it's a very difficult thing to do when you're, you're trying to be to work out who you actually are and and through your, your your teens and your 20s you know you're not supposed to know who you are you're trying to you're trying to discover it and and i think that that's why we get um you know people who who, who do feel constricted in the football world one of the themes that has come through and i see that i'm in charge of the text messages so i see them all every week and a lot of them is talking about Resilience, and everyone's had to show resilience through this COVID nineteen period. And they refer back to how you got through and how you're able to captain a club through. What's it like when people are making comments about you and judging you who don't know you? What's it like? Do you did you take it personally? Did you ignore it and say, "Well, they don't know me; it doesn't matter"? Has it affected you as a person when you look back on it? And has the time out of the game actually? you the old Job again? I mean, I, I don't know how to quite ask the yeah. question. But. Um, I think it's a skill set. It's a skill set like anything else. You, you learn to develop um, the abilities to handle it. And, 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 and initially, it's very painful and, and it hurts. Um, but the more you, you're exposed to it, the more resilient you become and the more... Uh, the more you learn about yourself and and about what what's what's important, and you seek advice and you seek help and and you talk to other people who who can give you that perspective and things like that. It's it's you know like it, it is like any skill you aren't you aren't just born with it. It's something that you train. It's like you know a football player. No one's born a great football player. It's a skill that they practice and and, and no one comes to the AFL. You get guys who are better quality. You know have better better athletes perhaps and their development. But everyone needs some more development. Um, and for me, you know, like it, like anything else, it was it was very difficult at, at the start. Um, it became less difficult as I became more resilient to it and, and better at, at at handling it. And I mean, uh, you know, who do you you know you know what I'm talking about? It's it, it's a very difficult thing to 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 be able to deal with, but it gets easier like anything else as you become more comfortable with who you are and and you 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 able to um, value the things that are really important to you. And, and, um, and that was something that I really learned. And, and, you know, I, I, all of the experiences that I had in my time in football have, have turned me into the person that I am now. And for that, I'm thankful. And I'm thankful for all the, the great things that I happened. And I'm, and I'm especially thankful for all the difficult things because I learned so much more about myself, about people, um, about dealing with things through, uh, really difficult things and and for that is it's a wonderful experience to have gone through and and um and i really am thankful for for everything that i had um good and bad that's fascinating uh, hey we should ask you the same pretty much the same question what what's it like to be james heard Well, I did get bullied last week for my red jumper, <laughs> so um, I'm not sure if that went online. So Job and Job can sit there on his high horse and talk about how hard it was, but he was quite able to throw it out uh, yesterday, uh, last week. But um, look, I don't know, what, what's it like to be any person? You go your ups and downs, and um, but just the scrutiny and the 
to, I mean, even as a player, I mean, you were a superstar player that people would go to watch you play football. And the expectation was they, they, they're going there to see you entertain. Yeah, and the interesting, how, go back, go back to a player, I, I never felt expectation from other people at all. I felt expectation from myself, mostly, from my teammates and my coach. And, and listening to Nathan Buckley talk, and it's a little bit I have a different perspective than probably both of these guys. I did care what other people thought when I, as a player. Um, not the not necessarily supporters, not necessarily the, the media, but I really cared what my teammates thought and what my coach thought about the, my performance. Not whether I kick five goals or what that sort of stuff, but uh, you know, for me, it was re- it was really important that we all felt like we put in together and we achieved together and we we did things together. And when you let a teammate down, um, I remember one day we were playing Hawthorne and uh, it was two thousand, and Mark Johnson was tagging Shane Crawford. And um, Sheeds had let me go in the centre bounce now and then. I said to uh, John at the start of the game, I said, um, do you mind if I start on Croft? I'll, get a, I'll try and get one out on him and then you can pick him up. And uh, John said, no problem. Anyway, Croft got the ball out of the middle. I wasn't manning up on him. Got a handball, kicked the goal first 30 seconds of the game. And the look Jono gave me, you know, Mark Johnson could give a spray at the best of times, but he didn't talk to me. It wasn't, it wasn't a spray, just the look of disappointment that I'd let him down. That's the sort of thing that I really cared about. So I actually did care what people thought about my performances, more so myself. Like, I really wanted to make sure I didn't let myself down. But, um, yeah, it was interesting as a player, the tightness of that group we had, you, you, you really felt when you let, you let your teammates down. So it's a slightly different perspective. Yeah, because it's more about that thing of... As an Essendon supporter, if Essendon were three goals down, it's like, oh well, well let's Hurdy will get us back in the game, well, and and then you, the scrutiny goes on you. That's this pressure that you're going to do it. I'm interested just in your mindset as a, as a player living that. Did you feel that pressure, or did it just you, do you grit your teeth and say, right, it's time to go now? Because because that's what you did. Yeah, not. I mean, there's often times I didn't do that as well. But the times I did do that, like the, the number of times, a few times I did do that, I really love that. That was the part that I loved because Sheeds would actually give you that license to do it. Like, I was I was a, mid, a midfielder who had to play forward. I just wanted to get in that centre square the whole time, my whole career. I just wanted to be playing there, and I was never allowed in there. So the the, the times I wasn't allowed in, I was allowed in there. I, I made the most of it because the centre square to me was that time you could go, okay, it's three on three, or you know, discount the ruckman, they don't do much. So <laughs> three on three, and and that's the best time to get the ball, and you can actually create, you can do things, and and make space from there. So. Um, when the opportunity arose that you know, a few minutes to go or you needed a goal, I, I sort of thought, well, yep, that, that's the time that I really wanted to, to play. And, and fundamentally, and probably similar to Job, being an Essendon supporter, you, you, I grew up just wanting to Essendon to win. And you'd sit in the stands or you'd watch the TV, and when we lost, you'd, you'd be bloody upset. You'd cry or you'd be you know, genuinely disappointed. So that always came through as a player, that I never wanted Essendon to lose. So it didn't matter if I played well or didn't play well up to a point, but if there was a point in the game where you could make a difference, then you, you want to make a difference. Will you be the same, Joe? Well, yeah, I used to cry all the time. When I was <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, I, I did. I, I mean, funnily enough, the, the thing I enjoyed most about playing was the centre bounce as well, because it was the ability to create. You know, like, yeah. and and one of the, the most satisfaction I ever got on the ground was making the game easier for someone else. Yeah. And that was, you know, like how I used to think about it in my mindset with, you know, with decision making and, and things so like you used that. To kick the ball, not handball. <laughs> 
when, it's different when you're the coach. Right, okay. <laughs> but, but that was what I really enjoyed. And, um, you know, like I, I was a you know, diehard supporter and so passionate about the team and, and, um, and, and and when especially when you're in a position of leadership and and the, you know that people are looking at you for guidance you don't want to let them down you no. want to and you want to do everything right by them you want to you want to you know do everything right on the field for them you want to do everything right off the field for them you want to guide you want to help them in every facet of their you know like of their time there and um you know one of the things that you you want is you want everyone whose experience who came through the Essendon when you were there or you were in a position of leadership you wanted them to walk away and have had a good experience and maybe not the career that they wanted uh, maybe they didn't play the, the games that they wanted but you wanted them to at least have had a good experience hmm. um, and and I think that that is that's that's what I wanted as a, as a captain and um, I guess uh, you know like that, that's part of the the responsibility of leadership you you have all these things that you 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 want to do for other people um and that other people are relying on you to to do it and whether you know heard he was one of those guys who you, when i was playing with him you were a bit like the, the fan you know like when when you needed something you wanted him to do it you know like because you you'd seen him do it in the past and you knew that he could do it and and um it was you know you became that fan you know like watching like it was such and that was a great part of playing with him you know like it was the ability to to it almost trans transformed you into the person watching tv but you're actually on the field with him yeah interestingly when, when and joe would be the same as a supporter when the, when Essen lost and you saw players smiling or shaking hands with the other team, you're like, "What the hell are you doing? What are you, what is going on here?" And as you played and you got old, you understood why you shook hands. You know, it was sportsmanship, and you sort of had to put on a brave face and smile and whatever. But I tell you what, the first I think it was David Grenville in about my third year pulled me aside and said, "Make sure you shake the opposition's hand. You look like a sport brat." And I said, "It's not that I don't like them. I'm just so disappointed." But you know, that's yeah. that was a thing that you just. You didn't want to lose, and uh, and that's why Sheeds used to always talk about if you can find good players and the Essence supporters, always pick them up because it'll mean you know, not maybe it does or it doesn't just mean that tiny bit more. But, and yeah. Adrian's still doing that now. Adrian Nadora, yeah, he's still picking a lot of uh, players that were Essendon supporters. It's still <laughs> part of what he does. Um, while we're talking about leadership, and I'm sure that if you're an Essendon fan listening to James and Job talk about that, that's that's pretty cool. Um, so honest and so insightful. But uh, Tim Payne also joined us, and he's an Essendon fan, and talked about coming into captaincy very late when it comes to the national team, but also try to shape a culture and turn the fortunes around of Australian cricket. It was pretty obvious to me that. The Australian cricket team, with the way they were going about it at times, was getting on the nose of um, of our fans and um, and of people who watch the game in this country. So, um, look for me, it was about making sure that we started to drive the team culture again, where people were thinking first about the team. I thought at times there was, and again, this was only from I was as you guys were as an external person. It looked to me that. Um, we'd sort of started to have a, a team that was just had some little fractions in it and and little groups and and people were more worried about themselves and um, you know who was getting paid what and who had what sponsorship and who was the best player and who was what not rather than um, you know how how privileged and how important the Australian cricket team are as, as role models for, for people around this country and the history that that goes with playing in that team and wearing that baggy, baggy green cap and um, yeah so for me South Africa was an extremely unfortunate moment but again 
uh, looking back, um, you know, a time to be able to reset and, and have a look at our values and, and why we want to play and why we do play and what's important to, to the Australian cricket team and, and how that looks to our, our fan and our public. So, um, yeah, it was an opportunity, I guess, to reset. But, I mean, my main message was that, was, that, you know, that everything we do now is about um, is about making sure the first, first decisions we make are about the team. Um, we spoke a little bit publicly about wanting to make Australians proud again um, and becoming better people and, um, you know, I think that's something we've we not only spoke about, but um, we've walked the walk in the last couple of years. And, um, yeah, I've certainly been really proud to be involved in it. Tim Payne, the captain of Australian cricket. What an amazing story. He'll write a good book one day <laughs> with uh, what he's gone through. Hurdy, we haven't asked you of all the interviews we did. Uh, what was one that stood out to you, do you think? Oh, look, just to go back through, Tim Payne was exceptional. I thought, you know, Joe was saying in the break, the leadership and just the ability to come in and, and say what he said and call call bullshit on the group, I think mm. was, was pretty amazing. I thought Bucks was really impressive. Obviously, love my old coach Sheeds and Dave Reed gave something, an insight mm. in the players. But for me, the, you know, Tamika Williams, we talk about heroes and we talk about people who make a difference and, you know, often footballers get thrown up in lights. Um, but what the story she was talking through in ICU and the fact that it, the the level of uncertainty in her voice when she was talking about what was to come, and it probably didn't come, what, mm. what they were expecting, because um, I remember her saying that the worst is yet to come in, in that interview, and it probably didn't come for any of us. Thankfully, it didn't come. But you could just sense that she was unsure if it was like America or like Italy or, or like the UK or like France. Um, with the potential, but uh, certainly uh, a hero and an Essendon member. And I think, um, to me, that really... Essendon people on the front line, talking about how much they love the club, but also how they're helping people. I think that encompassed the whole show. Well, let's have a listen. I agree with you. And this is uh, Tamika talking about, uh, well, the fact she was um, one of Essendon's, in a way, frontline volunteers, and uh, talking about what it was like looking after coronavirus patients. This is just another day on a bigger scale um you know all nurses we can adapt really well anything you know comes in at any time and we just adapt to it um there's been a lot going on Uh, i work in the intensive care unit at my hospital and there's been a lot going on especially behind the scenes here there's been so many people creating protocols and sourcing protective equipment for us to keep us safe um there's so much going on every day uh it's a massive team effort to manage to this coronavirus. <laughs> In all honesty, we haven't hit the worst yet. Um, that's still to come. Um, luckily, we've been in a position to learn from the experiences from other countries. Um, we're very responsive to what each day brings and every day things change. Um, for example, on one of my night shifts a few weeks ago, we pulled up the death toll, the live death toll that was happening in the US. And at the start of my shift, that was around 8,000 people had died from coronavirus. And at the end of my 10-hour shift, that number was up to 9,200. Um, yeah. And that's sickening, like, to see that and hear that and to know that that's happening, you know, to people somewhere so far away. It's just horrible. Um, for yeah. us here in Australia, um, the measures that Scott Morrison has popped in place and what all of our premiers have popped in place um, has done so much more than I think the general public can understand. Um, these stage three restrictions are just helping minimise the risk. Um, it's, they've done such an amazing job and everyone staying home is doing such an amazing job um, preventing us from hitting our, you know, the worst yet. So, you know, everyone staying home is doing a great job. 
That was uh, Tamika Williams, an Essendon member and uh, certainly on the front line. Now, I reckon that was about late April um, and the worry was always about May and yes. what that was going to be. Um, but uh, fortunately, obviously, May wasn't as bad as what we all were dreading at the time. But uh, very, very brave. Now, I wanted to play this, Xavier, and Andrew Welsh and what he was able to do and what he continues to do in giving back to Essendon, particularly through the the uh, Back of the Bomber campaign. He, here is Andrew, and then Xavier will talk a little bit more, particularly to members out there listening to this, about what they can do and, and what, they want, I guess, the, the footy club wants them to continue to do. It's an environment at the moment that everyone needs a, an arm thrown around, you know, around them somehow, whether it's you know, financial support or it's a, an ear to talk to or, um, you know, or you know, anything, any type of in, interaction. Um, you know, it's something that, that everyone needs. And I saw, you know, well, Bob McDonough, you know, one of the, uh, you know, Mick Early, one of the, the gems of the world in, the, you know, with his empathy and, um, you know, and he helps support a, a family through, which is, you know, with their membership, which is, you know, which is really, you know, challenging. It was something that I, you know, I, it resonated with me. I think, well, you know, I can provide, you know, I look at the members that have, you know, cheered me and booed me, but they, you know, they are part of what the, you know, the great club is. And, if there was some support there that I could help provide, um, you know, in a small way to help help the club, but help those people continue to feel like they are, you know, part of the membership and contributing through this tough time, then, you know, it was something that I wanted to do and it wasn't to, you know, recognition or it was just, you know, it's just the, the environment that, and, you know, the place that wherever I can, however I can, within means, help, help out the footy club and those that, that do support it. The former number 12 of the Bombers, uh, Xavier, giving back. And I guess a lot of the text messages coming through are talking about all the different sort of things that the footy club have come up with, uh, ideas to help support members and give themselves the best chance to still be involved in the footy club. How's that all tracking? And is there any advice out there for, for Bomber fans? Yeah, it's tracking really well. I was sort of referencing at the start of the show. It's sort of you know it's such a unique year where ultimately we're sort of saying to any of the members, if you know, it's it's a year unlike any other, You're not unlikely to be able to access a heap of games. Hopefully, you know it's looking more positive now, and we could we could see more, a lot more access than we probably thought it could be. But ultimately, we launched that campaign about a month ago now, three weeks ago, where we said to our fans, you know, it's if you want to pledge your membership for the year, regardless of what happens. Um, We'll, we'll give you a signed Guernsey of your choice. Uh, and the Anthony McDonald tip and Woody Guernsey, he's going to have... We might have to do that in the off-season because <laughs> I worry it might have an impact on his on his availability <laughs> the week after if he does. I think we've had um, you know thousands of Guernseys um, taken up by the fans. So they've pledged their entire membership. Um, so that means an enormous amount. Um, there's others that have... The other option was if you want a credit for next year, um, and there's been a few take that up. And then there's also the refund because everyone's in a unique position and uh, we don't begrudge any option that any member chooses because you know this, this period of time has had significant impact on so many people. And, um, and if a member wants to, have a ref- wants to get a refund, um, they'll still have their reserve seat next year. Their years of consecutive membership will still be maintained. But um, you know, clearly, the more members that pledge... Um, the more, you know, I guess, it gives us a lesser reduction around debt, um, which is pretty important because we're going to have significant debt already because of the facility expansion that's on foot, and then we're halfway through. And, um, you know, it's, so far it's been just overwhelmingly positive. And, um, you know, hopefully that continues. I'm equal, I said. They've all got different choices, members. Um, the other aspect of it is the Back Our Bomber, which we launched with Welshie and sort of referencing it earlier. 
you know, we've had almost $50,000 donated right. to the back of Bomber, um, and that's essentially... So for anyone that's finding it financially, they're finding it really difficult. Um, the club, will, through all different supporters, through the board, through others that have put money into it, um, will pay for their membership this year. And uh, I think that's an amazingly positive gesture and, and, a, and a well thought through gesture, and um, it's been such well, so so well supported. It's it's it, again, it's pretty heartwarming when you see those sorts of things happen. From a supporter's point of view, and from all of us, everyone's really excited. Footy's back, and we're all. It's almost like we feel like we're over the hump, and the job's been done. The players are going to get out and play, and the, you know whether you're not at the games, you can sit at home and yell and scream and part of it. But as a club. Are we over the worst of it, or is there still potentially, you know, what 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 could go wrong, or, or what has to go right to make sure the club is in a financially stable position for the next two or three years? Mm. The club's in a in a pretty good position financially with respect to not having to probably become an assisted AFL club, mm. and that's yeah, we've spoken about that length on this show. Like I, I was very reluctant for us to want to get to that point. I think the board was because there was rightly or wrongly, and either directly or indirectly. A lot of your decisions that you make, not compromise is the wrong word, but are overseen by a higher body that's not connected to the club, and that becomes challenging, I think. And I don't think any member would want it. I know when I mentioned it to you, Herder, you had a very strong view on where the club should get to, and I, I think know. we I all sort of agree. About that, <laughs> we all agree. Um, and we've invested heavily. Like we, we, we are at the end of this year, we will have probably the best professional facility in the country. And you, mm. you guys know, you've seen it in its existing f- frame. You, you add another $21 million expansion on top of that, um, of which we're halfway through it when COVID hit. Um, it's going to have, you know, we'll have the best women's facilities. We'll have dormitory accommodation for our Indigenous programs, our community programs, our partnership with Paralympics Australia. We'll have new VFL change rooms, community change rooms. We'll have, you know, a, an excellent sort of turnkey operation when it comes to AFL program. It's, it's, we won't need to do anything for 10, 15, 20 years. Like it's, we're going to be in an exceptional position, but the timing of COVID couldn't have been worse when it came to cash flows. Mm. And that's why when I talk about it, and it's, it's hard because you're trying to balance the CEO, you're trying to balance the commerciality of the club and balancing the books and getting to a position where you, you're not continually going to members or high net worth for funding. Um, but also the reality that your ownership position is such that you rely heavily on that on those groups anyway to, to help you get through. And you know, for us, I guess it's unique because it was only four or five years ago that you know, in 2016 the season was wasn't a write-off but the whole concept of what winning and losing of the season it became a very different perspective around what success was going to look like that year and we had such exceptional support from our members that year so to then in less than five years be back in a position where we're asking our members to to commit and buy in and um, look beyond and and understand the bigger picture of the football club you know we're back there again and the support has been just, it's, it's been incredible. And um, I don't think it's fair to talk about the percentages because every other club's going to be, t- no one really wants to probably talk as a trade-off about how many members are pledging and things like that. But I know ours is, is super, super high. And that just speaks to the loyalty and the passion of the fans. But we're in a pretty good position. I don't want us to stop investing in growth initiatives. Mm. I don't want us to just be a normal football club. I want to make sure we continue to evolve and innovate and think differently because you know, I think the goal of the executive and the board right now should be that if another pandemic or other disaster, be it financial, whatever, came about, we should be in a position where we are strong enough to survive that through an extended period of time because of the smart investments we've made, um, the less reliant on, on, on field performance necessarily, but that's still a critical element of our football club that we clearly know is number one priority when it comes to where Essendon's been and where we want to go. 
Um, and that's got to be the determination that we all need to show to make sure we get Essendon to where we need to get to. So it's been overwhelmingly positive and uh, we're very, very thankful for it. And the members have been incredible. How difficult has it been from a club perspective when you haven't got all your staff on board trying to answer questions from members, trying to facilitate everything? Um, because I know that has been frustrating from a, a fan's point of view across all footy clubs. Yeah. But then that a juggle for you guys of, well, you don't have all the staff to be able yeah. to do everything. I guess I'd say, because Herdy asked you, have we seen the worst of it? As the CEO of the footy club, we haven't seen the worst of it because... Unfortunately, I know there's going to be some permanent changes we're going to have to make as a business that are going to heavily impact our people. And I know it's through no fault of the people involved in the football club. And that's incredible. That's hard when you have to make those decisions. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're coming up to a position where, regardless of having games come back, regardless of the crowds piece, because we know it's not going to be uh, material in the sense of, you know, every home game is we're going to have a full audience and things like that. We know that television distribution is likely to be reduced. We know that football department, you know, is, is a good indication of what's likely to sort of be needed across the entire business to come out of this in a way that we can manage the debt level. And we're going to have significant debt because of the position we're in around our facility expansion. So the changes, are, the hard changes, the permanent changes are probably yet to come and they're going to be really, really difficult because uh, we've got great people at our football club and we're, we're thinking of all of them who are who are really frustrated and who have, have been in a position where they're just in a, in a state of flux and sort of, I'm not languishing is the wrong word, but they're just out there wondering what's next. And Treading that's really, water. It's, it's it is, not very knowing. much. Yeah. I mean, you've seen it while. You know from managing yeah, the station what that's like. And that's it's not easy. And that's and it's in part, it gets back to why we, we, we want to run this program. Why do we think about this? I mean, listening to Job and Hurley, I remember the, the night where I had the, the two conversations with them both was, oh, gee, it's going to be hard on people. How we're going to help them work through it, and that's you know, essentially the working title came about. And um, you know, hopefully, in a small way, we've been able to do that over the last ten weeks—not just for our staff, our people, but for our fans, because every fan is, is impacted in a different way. Some can pledge, and some can't. And this football club is not going to judge one bit around if you can or if you can't. You know, we really respect it if you can, and it's amazing. But if you if you can't, we also respect that. And um, you know, I think this. The program's been great, and I thank the boys for the involvement in the program. I thank you. I thank Joey. thank everyone at RSN. Dave Barham's played an enormous part behind the scenes in helping us get to this point. Ben Corson, uh, Justin Rodsky, Julian Trentino, um, Mark Bertieri, like all of you have helped us. You know, we've, we all brought this together literally in 10 days. I think it was probably even less than that. And uh, I think it's really served a purpose, and I know there's a lot of fans would love for the program to, to keep going. It's just... In the reality, the boys are really, you know, the boys are really busy. Um, I know you spoke about well, getting Hurdy back involved. You're super surprised. Well, I wasn't surprised, you know, probably because sp- I speak to him pretty regularly. But I also know how passionate he is about the football club. Like he was, he was never going to say no to a concept that was going to help bridge the connection with the fans and the club during such a unique period. I didn't think that, and he, you know, he essentially came up with the idea for the show. Um, in tandem with me, and Job was the same. You know, he's he loves the fans. He always has loved the fans, and he's been such a central focus point for our football club and our connection with our fans. And you know, it's it's not lost on anyone. So we're very lucky to have been in the position we're in. I think you need a black texter to give to Hurdy to sign some jumpers because there's a lot of requests coming through for. Um, Anthony might be high up on the agenda, but I reckon Hurdy's might be a popular one too, based so on the text week, messages coming next through. Next week, we can do it for real. I can do it with real listeners. And <laughs> well, not just practice I'll, it. I'll, Ten weeks of practice. I, we I actually want to get properly. to that. I want to get to that at the end. We, right. We're going to wrap it up in a moment. But um, 
Is it good to be back doing something with Essendon? Absolutely, yeah. It's been really enjoyable. I think um, uh, to you know sit down and connect with the, the team here that have been doing it, um, but also I don't know just to talk talk about things that you know reminisce a little bit, but talk about COVID, talk to the fans, listen to the fans. Um, it's it's been really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I'm not sure about you, Joe, but I think it's been. It has been an enjoyable experience, and I'm actually looking forward to watching the Bombers play again after this and sort of getting a little bit closer to them. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like um, playing, isn't it? Like, the playing was the easy part. This has been the easy part, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and to be able to... The, the, the greatest joy that I had from playing was the ability to provide joy to other people um, doing something that I loved, you know, and that we we always had the we had the easy part of the equation, didn't we? Like we we just got to play and, and we just got to we're just talking footy. It's it's the people who um, you know support the club and love the club and and the passion that they have for it. They're the ones that go to the games every week. They're the ones that commit, you know, financially commit. Um, for them they commit their time they commit their emotion like that's that's the hard thing about being yeah. a supporter it takes all the effort uh, yet we get we get the adulation that we we you know we've done something over and above when really we've we've done the easy part and the fans are doing the hard part mm. but it's been great to um to connect with you again and and to connect over the our shared love of, of the game and and to be able to in a small part, help um, yeah. and just talk footy, and 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 I am I'm the same. I'm really excited for the, the guys to get back out there, and excited for them to be able to go out and play and know what that will mean to such a wide, large audience, and, and what that means to a lot of people. And I think a big shout out, no, Xavier did it, but to Dave Barham, who you know has really put the show together and done all the yeah. work behind the scenes. He's because, done all um, the work. <laughs> he has done all the work. Just told Joe and I what to say. Say this, 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 and this, and you'll be right. But yeah, and thanks to. Everyone here at RSN too. Why do the yeah, team? I think uh, you guys have certainly supported us. But from you know, Dave sends numerous emails, and Joe reads <laughs> one in every ten. But um, thank you, Dave, for listening. Yeah. And, and I think we should uh, thank Coles as well, particularly with the, the vouchers that they gave away um, to a lot of our listeners. Coles Insurance, Amart. Um, all those legendary moments that we reflected over the time. Who else would you like? No, well, they're great partners. And we gave a Coles voucher away last week. And this is the spirit of the Essendon fan. I mean, we gave one to Mark. I can't remember. It was $250 or $500 voucher. And he ended up donating it back into the club to give it to someone who was in a less fortunate position than him. And that was you know, part of the reason why we were running the show was to try and find those people that were um, in greater need because of the impact of COVID. Um, you know, the my colleagues next to me have, have gone and run out special deliveries at different times that no one will ever know about um, to fans in need that um, you know, I think is really admirable and, and means an enormous amount to them and it speaks to the spirit of the footy club and its connection with its members. Absolutely. Well, on beha- I'm going to be on behalf of all the Essendon fans and members out there reflective of so many messages that have come through is just to say thank you to you three. Um, it's been a wonderful experience to be a very small parting all of this, but I know that so many Essendon fans have just... There's just been so much joy to just reflect back and listen to all the great stories um, and to have Job and James back talking about Essendon in such a way is just... I think it's a really, really special thing. So particularly Herdy and to Job, thank you. And I think also, again, on behalf of Essendon fans, Xavier, the, the openness, the transparency and the way that you, you speak to the fans is, I think, second to none. And I think... Uh, Essendon fans should be really proud of the CEO that uh, the club has got. And I think the three of you have, you know, you've only got to go through and, and look at all the, the support that there's been through Facebook, uh, through Twitter, through text messages. And I think the, 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 the final number I'd like to be able to say is that there have been over 200,000 
thousand listens to the podcast in the last ten weeks, which is a credit to the three of you and um, a credit to the Essendon fans that have got behind something that the football club have put together. So, thank you very much, boys. Thank you. Good luck, well thank you, John, and the uh, team on the weekend. Absolutely, that's yeah, the most that's important. What now what you guys for. have done your job. Now it's over to them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. It's almost dark outside. We've got another 20 minutes over time, but uh, oh well, that's the way it goes. It was the final one, so we're always going to go a little bit longer. Enjoy the rest of your night, but more importantly, enjoy the footy on Sunday, and hopefully the Bombers can get the four points.